This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. My name is Dan Pavalli, coming at you with my super-duper, incredibly esteemed, awesome-times-awesome, fantabulous, spectaculario, ripping good bloke, Esquire, 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 co-host Andrew D. Bailey. That's not going to get old for a little bit. He passed the bar. I'm so excited for him. What's the answer uh, for the awesome-times-awesome equation? Awesome squared. <laughs> well, yeah, that answers it. Well done. <laughs> um, and again, congratulations to him for passing the bar. We are, I personally am just so excited because it was great. He was nervous and I told him that he was being stupid and that he tweeted through it for the past few years. He was clearly going to pass. Shouts to him once again. Um, today we are going to take a break from our division preview train. You will be listening to this on a Friday morning, hopefully before your weekend. If you're not, though, um, even though Andy is super busy having a real family and a real life, and even though I will be getting married this weekend, we have a division preview for the Pacific Division all teed up for you on Monday or Tuesday. We haven't really decided when we're going to schedule it. If you have a preference as to when you listen to your podcast, feel free to get at us on Twitter at Dan Favale, D-A-N-F-A-V-A-L-E, at Andrew D. Bailey, spelled like it sounds, or at Hardwood Knox. Um, we also talk about Russell Westbrook's injury in that pod, so uh, we won't be getting to that analysis here, but if you want to hear more about that, look for it early next week. That's how dedicated we are to bringing you content. We have other shit going on, but we are planning that's, ahead. That's how dedicated you are. <laughs> Don't I mean, sell yourself short. I know that you love the Pacific Division and we're heartbroken that you couldn't jump on that two-hour par, two-hour-ish pod in which, spoilers, I go on a three-minute-long impassioned rant about the Sacramento Kings, and I also <laughs> cape ridiculously hard for Devin Booker. I don't even know what happened. I blacked out. As long as, as, long as there's no Buddy Heald shade. There is, there, there's Buddy Heald love. Okay, good, good. Um, when we, were, we had to find bright spots for the Kings, and he was one of them. Anyway, we are... Uh, first, before we dive into what is going to be a mailbag, so thank you all for your questions. Uh, Andy always gets a ton of them. There was when I went to sleep last night, there was well over sixty questions. So thank you to everybody who reached out. But I just want to remind you all to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. Uh, we love when we see the numbers go up. As Andy just passed the bar and needs gifts, as me getting married doesn't really want gifts, but just wants uh, something great to happen. Please just throw us that five star review and then go in there and write some comments with some feedback. Uh, we really appreciate it. We thank you all for listening. And this would be a good time as the season is approaching or training camps are about to open. Just get out the word of mouth. People need shitty basketball takes in their life. And, th- and that's what we bring. Um, you can also find us wherever podcasts uh, are at elsewhere, wherever you listen to them. But again, iTunes is the best way to help us out and provide feedback right now. Really quickly, and finally, you can still get your 15% off at the NBA Math Shop. That's nbamath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. And at long last, after four plus minutes of me rambling, we get to the question that people sometimes can't sleep knowing that they need to find out the answer to. Andy, how the hell are you? I am doing great, Dan. Uh, I'm excited for another mailbag. These are always fun for me, so I'm ready to just tear into them. And like I told you before we started recording, I'm going into this one uh, basically blind. Usually I'll answer a ton of questions the night before and have a bunch of stats keyed up, but I'm going to, these are all going to be fresh. Oh, uh, that's great because I actually did some prep work the night before, so suck it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, did you want to start though and pick a random question that you like? Let's see. Um, this is from Aaron at Swaggy MDs. Do you think LeBron will stay near his peak long enough for the Lakers to be contenders in the next few years? So we just say no and move on. You don't think they're going to contend at all in the next few years? What is define contend? Or, or define the next few years, I guess. Um, I'll say contend for a title within the next four years. Well, LeBron's contract is up in four or oh, three, at which point he will probably go back to Cleveland. So, so within this contract? Uh, it's Look, it's... I don't have a if, – if you ask me is LeBron going to be closer to his peak than not by the end of this deal, my answer is going to be yes because LeBron's a superhuman. If you're trying to talk to me into the Lakers as contenders, I don't know. Uh, I would probably lean toward no just because the Warriors, even if Kevin Durant leaves, aren't going to go anywhere for the next three to four years. James Harden is still going to be around in Houston. There are some budding superpowers in Utah and Denver. If the Pelicans get another player while re-signing Anthony Davis – uh, they're a team that's going to watch. Phoenix might get better as the years go on. Uh, think about where the Mavericks will be in the next two to three years. It will be easier for them to have a path to the Western Conference Finals as that time goes on, but are they guaranteed to even get a player, a superstar in 2019? This could come down to how many of their young kitties really pop. And while I love Brandon Ingram, uh, Lonzo Ball is great, Josh Hart's really good, Kyle Kuzma uh, should be a fantastic offensive player for uh, most of his career, I just it's tough for me to see. And if I had to pick right now, I would say that LeBron has made his last NBA Finals already, unless he eventually leaves teams once his contract with the Lakers is up. It's kind of crazy. I, I I probably don't disagree with you. I just think it's kind of crazy that he went to the Lakers and may never have another title window. Um. When he could have, it, it would have been open for at least another two or three years in Cleveland, right? I mean, just looking at the East, yeah. Or he could have went to another team that was ready to win a title. Yeah. Um, so th- this was obviously a decision about more than basketball. I'm I'm at a point now where you know he's made eight straight finals, so I I have a hard time <laughs> betting against him at this point. But yeah, the the deck is pretty stacked in the West. I do think. At some point within his contract, we're going to talk about the Lakers as a real title contender. I don't know if it means that two or three of these young guys take a leap or if it means that Anthony Davis is you know, suddenly a Laker two years from now or um, Jimmy Butler. I think they're going to get another guy. I think one or two of the young guys will, will click in before LeBron starts his decline. And I think he'll have one last tiny little uh, title window. Hey, you were right about LeBron going to the Lakers, so I should just blindly agree with you and throw my takes in the garbage. Um, and if anyone heard, I can't, t- I can't tell. Uh, my fiance's father might have just made a cameo on the podcast because he came up to my podcasting room and uh, had a question about the upcoming wedding festivities. So shout out to him if you heard him. If you did not, this was a pointless detour. Um, <laughs> I, it wouldn't surprise me if they were title contenders, though. It wouldn't. And again, I'm even. We talked about this in the Pacific Division preview. Their win, their ceiling right now might be one that has the highest variance in the league or close to it. Because if you told me they were going to miss the playoffs this season, I you could talk me into it. I don't think they will. Yeah, but if you told sure. me that, but if you also told me that they were going to get to the Western Conference Finals uh, because they're not going to play the Warriors before then, I would also believe you. Just because it it seems like the tier just below Golden State is still fairly wide open. I like teams like Utah. Uh, Denver, even Houston as well. Oklahoma City, if they're healthy and then Westbrook and Schroeder can figure it out despite not getting a trading camp together, might like those squads better. But you could talk me into the Lakers making the Western Conference Finals this season if they don't have to play the Warriors. And that is, I think, a, a huge hat tip in favor of your argument because the Lakers are far from a finished product right now. Yeah, I, I think that we're still going to see some more uh, movement from that team. Just within this first LeBron contract with them. I guess the other thing that could help them, though, is we don't know how often LeBron is going to rest this year. And if you're not, because it doesn't seem like 
they're bent on winning a title. And I, I have to believe that the roster they put together, the moves they made after signing LeBron James were mostly deliberate because they had to know that there were other guys out there, whether it was a Ba Mute, a James Ennis, just better fits in general alongside LeBron that they could have gotten for Rondo money or Lance Stevenson money. And it seems like they're being deliberate and maybe trying to test something out, but mostly they know that this year is a transition year. And maybe it's a situation where we only see LeBron play 60 something games, unless he's really intent on winning the MVP award. And if he's not going to have to go full bore, not just for the entire regular season, but then not have to worry about playing into June only to get pummeled by the Warriors. That's it's, I don't know if it matters just because he has so much mileage on his legs that he's a, a, a preternatural being to begin with. But anything that I guess would help conserve him for the next, you know, looking at next season or the season after that would be a pretty big deal for the Lakers. They really defended those deals too over the course of the summer. I'm sure that's what you have to do as a front office. Um, and maybe maybe they were thinking the way that you're um, – detailing but they were they were very gung-ho about we want we want guys who can create and we want to take some of that load off lebron um it was an i mean i'm with you there were a bunch of guys that made more sense than the guys that they got but it was it was certainly a very interesting summer for the lakers um post lebron everything that happened after that was just kind of head scratching it was Kentavious caldwell pope is seems like he'll be a good fit but everything else was the the only compliment I can give is that it, unless the Lakers just completely misread the market, like in 2016, and I don't think that this front office is is that daft. Um, the biggest compliment I can give is that the moves were on purpose and not on accident or the byproduct <laughs> of misreading the market. That doesn't mean they were good because they're not, but that's that's the greatest yeah. compliment I can give them. The moves were on purpose. I like that. <laughs> we should put that on a shirt. The 2018-2019 Los Angeles Lakers, built on purpose. (laughs) Um, I have a question from Walter uh, Esfedo. I hope I didn't mispronounce that. At WayD25. Real expectations for Frank Nielakina this year. I'm curious to know if you have any of your own realistic expectations for Frank Nielakina. I tagged that one, too. Um I, I'm I'm still pretty high on Frank Nilakina. He's coming off a season when he averaged six points, shot 36% from the field, and 32% from three. Um, but when you're when you're looking at his ceiling right now, I think it's more of a defensive thing than offensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he kind of reminds me of Dante Exum in a lot of ways, and he even when he's playing, he looks more refined than Exum did when he came into the league. The numbers are just similar, and. Um, he reminds me in the sense that he's already kind of figured it out defensively, which is super impressive for a kid of his age uh, and his experience level. The fact that he's already, I think to some degree figured out that side of the ball is a huge, huge plus. I think it could take three or four years for him to figure it out offensively and what that looks like. I don't know if, if him figuring it out offensively is like 13, 14 points a game and a league average three point percentage I think that's a good player when you combine that with what he can do defensively. I don't, um, and I could, I could probably give the same explanation for Dante Exum and have it make sense. So um, I, I'm still pretty high on him. I don't know if he's ever going to become like a superstar or anything, but I, I do like Frank Nilakina. Yeah. The, the point you made too, about just how it looks like he has a good feel for the game. I don't know if he'll, where I look at Dante Exum, and this is this is gonna be such a weird thing to say. I think he's more likely to not show hesitance when it comes to trying to develop a pull up jumper and shooting threes. I think Frank Nielakina is more likely to actually develop the mechanics to hit them. He's just not gonna shoot them, and it's gonna be where Exum's more aggressive and and less efficient. And maybe Nielakina just is never ever aggressive, and he's going to be slightly more efficient. His value on the offensive end might eventually just come as an off-ball cutter, uh, and maybe one of those standstill shooters where you don't trust them to hit a bunch of jumpers in high volume or off the dribble, but you can at least force them to make, or they'll force defenses to respect their shot. Uh, for defense, he's he's just 
he's already there. Like, I don't even really know what, what else to say. Um, he had almost a block percentage of one last year, which for a rookie guard is fantastic, and almost a steal percentage of two, which, again, for a rookie guard, uh, 1.4 steals for 36 minutes was pretty good. And I have some stats teed up here. Um, he rated in isolation defense in the 86th percentile. And he allowed 0.7 points per isolation possession just for someone who's great defensively. And for a, com- a comparison reference, when looking at the frequency with which they defended isolations, Anthony Davis allowed 0.72 points per isolation possession. So right in line with that. And of the 119 players to defend at least 150 pick and roll possessions against the ball handler, Frank Nielakina ranked third in points allowed per possession. Um, Lou Williams was first, so you can take that with whatever metric ton of alcohol that you would like. <laughs> Jason Tatum was second, which I, I do think speaks to how Jason Tatum was underrated defensively uh, last year, and I, I'm very anxious to see what him and Jalen Brown turn into this year with Boston, but that's besides the point. So for a rookie to be in that range, I, I would say it bodes well. And if you have a defensive specialist – who you drafted, um, not in one of the strongest uh, classes in 2017, and you got him at eighth, you know what? That's fine to me. And he he's going to be someone who can de- defend up to small forwards. Yeah, and those kind of players, I think, are going to be valuable going forward. I, I uh, was just sort of thinking out loud on Twitter last night when I said I, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of 6'6 six, six and under uh, people playing what is technically known as small forward mm-hmm. next season. I think we're going to have a ton of lineups, not just next season, but over the next several years where there's basically three guards out there. And Frank Nielakina, uh, he's just, he's built perfectly for that. Like you said, he can guard a bunch of different positions. He's got the length and athleticism where even if a team does keep more of a traditionally sized uh, small forward out there, he's going to be able to at least make things difficult for that guy. So um, he's trending well. Are you are you on defense anyway? The offense is still kind of just a little bit of a wild yeah. card. Uh, erratic finishing around the rim too last season. Uh, it did. He did. There were points where he shot well, and I think he ended up shooting over sixty percent inside three feet. Yeah, sixty two point one percent, which is fine. Um, the numbers from you know, 31.8% from three, 32.1% on long twos, 34.6 between 10 and 16 feet. Um, that's something that you you want him to be able to hit those shots at a relatively average clip. But are you ready for me to make you proud with a sort with a defensive stats fine that I did while you were talking? Let's do it. There were points last season where he was on bigger players, and it kind of made me think if he defended any, any real amount of post-ups. Uh, he didn't. They accounted for 3.6% of the possessions he defended. But of the 298 players to defend at least 20 post-ups, Frank Nielakina, second in points allowed per 100 possessions, behind Aaron Gordon, who was first, and just in front of LeBron James and Marc Gasol. Wow. So, again, all these small samples, but he's a rookie, and to show up in so many of the way of, like, the flattering stat splits that I'm using and yes they get specific but to just come up that often I think that has to be a decent uh just token uh, like a decent signal of something yeah I would um being being graded out so high on three different kind of defensive positions is I I would say that's even more than a token percentile in post-up defense yeah he's further along defensively than I was even given him credit for in my original answer um, all right, I've got one. EAP at E-A-D-A-M-P-E-E-K. E-Adam Peak, I'm guessing. Uh, <laughs> is Jokic one of or the greatest passing center to play? And I'm, I'm, a, I'm assuming that's a historical question. Nikola Jokic, greatest passing center of all time. I'm assuming you just have these stats memorized at this point, right? <laughs> I uh, basically I did search it while we were talking about Frank Nilakina, though, um, and this is only one component of this. <clears throat> I just searched six players who are six ten or up by assist percentage, uh, minimum five thousand minutes played. Jokic is first 
at 26. Tony Kukoc is second, 24. Blake Griffin, third, 22. Yanni Antetokounmpo, fourth, 20. Um, Tom Borwinkle, fifth, 19. The only the only two guys in that top five that were even centers are Jokic and Borwinkle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, Demarcus Cousins is another center. He's eighth. Bill Walton is a center. He's tenth. Marcus All twelfth. Um, maybe we could say Pau Gasol is a center, although he spent a lot of his career playing power forward. He's thirteenth. Tim Duncan fourteenth. Um, nobody's close. N- no centers are close to Jokic's assist percentage. And like I said, that's only one part of the equation. Obviously we know that assists don't necessarily equal great passer um, or lack of assists don't necessarily equal bad passer. (laughs) Just watching him play. One of my favorite videos of the last two or three years, I think it was SB nation did that thing where it compared his passing to water polo, (laughs) how he just kind of wherever he is on the floor, he can see the whole floor. He's got the ball above his head and he just, he hits the cutter at the perfect time. Um, Every pass seems to be on target. I, I don't know if there – my dad would probably kill me if he heard me say this, but I don't know if there's ever been a better passing big man uh, than Nikola Jokic. I, I think older people um, might argue for like Bill Walton, um, Tom Borwinkle. is certainly impressive statistically as a passer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry, guys. But, uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> – this is maybe the young, uh, biased mind, but I'm going with Jokic. Yeah, it's so tough because we we definitely weren't old enough to watch some of the other like really good passing bigs. And, yeah. Uh, but the way the offense runs through Jokic, when you look at his usage too, and again, those water polo passes are absurd. They're like, you remember those Magic Johnson like back-to-the-basket drop-off passes? Yeah, Jokic, like no looks. he has that. Yeah, and he's, I mean, Magic Johnson wasn't like a dwarf, but Nikola Jokic is huge. And like, you just yeah. don't see that vision from big men. And I think by the end of his career, I would say if, if we wanted to do a polite hedge, we look back and we say, we just watched one of the three best passing centers of all time. And that might be his floor at this point. Yeah. Well, how many assists do you think he'll average this year? What was he at last year? 5.5, right? Around there? I think last year he averaged 6.1. Oh, my God. He averaged 6.7 per 36. And we've done this before on the pod, but I'm going to do it again just just for the heck of it. From January 25th to the end of the season, he averaged 7.4. It's It's interesting because it's like as Jamal Murray gets better – now you have Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, he takes some of that, yeah. And you have a full Millsap for an entire season. You could go either way because it's, oh, he won't have the ball as much, or, oh, there are people around, more people around, they're going to hit shots. I think he'll be I think he'll be over five per game. And I'll say over, I'll say between 6.5 and, and 7.5 per 36. I think he's getting to seven this year. Per 36 or per game? Per game, I um, I think they they dinked around for the first half of the season again last year, like they did the year before, and I I'm hoping that finally they start this season all in on running the offense through Jokic. I don't know how you could watch as a coach the last couple months of that season and try anything other <laughs> than what they were doing at that point, right? Um, at least with him, and the luxury with. I've said this a few times, but with Murray and Gary Harris, I, I think you could definitely trust Jamal Murray with more of a uh, playmaking load. But having both of those guys essentially play shooting guard, I, I think unlocks um, levels to that offense that so few teams have. Um, both of those guys are just really dynamic playing off of Jokic. So I, I think, again, he averaged – 7.4 for the last couple months, uh, last almost three months of the season, uh, last season. So I, I'm going to say he gets up over seven this year. That's pretty crazy to say, but, um, but it also doesn't sound crazy when you justify it. It's not like yeah. absurd. Um, are you ready? This is going to rile up some fan bases. I think this question, and huh. it was, I think it might've been the first one I, I flagged last night. It comes from exquisite corpse at high underscore. It's, I-T-S underscore Mekhi, M-E-K-H-I. 
Rudy Gobert or Draymond Green? I'm assuming I I stayed away from that one on purpose. I know. I, I figured you would, but I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to make you drop some hot takes here. I <laughs> look, if I, there are two different ways to look at this, I think. It's if we're talking about right it would be are we talking about right now? Or are we talking about? I'm guessing right now. Long term, right now. I, it, I don't know if my answer. You don't I was know. Say, I don't know if my answer changes. It might, but go ahead. Well, then may, I'm assuming maybe we won't be in lockstep. Then I would take Draymond Green because I look at it this way. Uh, even though the numbers weren't good last year, he played per cleaning the glass 341 possessions without Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, or Stephen Curry on the floor. Rudy Gobert, there were injuries. He missed a good chunk of the season. He played 58 possessions without what I believe to be Utah's three most important players on offense in Donovan Mitchell, Joe Ingles, and Ricky Rubio. He's not, when you're going to have the ability, even in theory, just to kind of be the fulcrum of the offense on your own and that a team can use you that way or talk yourself into using it that way, Draymond Green's the pick to me particularly now in today's NBA, because you're not, let's say Rudy Gobert develops more than just a, a rim running dependent game. You're not going to feed the ball into the post. Like me, I guess it could work when you're playing second units, but that's not something you're going to look to do necessarily. The other thing for me, I think particularly with the way that Draymond Green has been defending during the regular season since uh, last year, that Rudy Gobert is the more impactful defender but right now, Draymond Green is the more versatile defender. Where my answer changes is uh, Draymond Green. Rudy Gobert's 26. Draymond Green's going to turn 29 on March 4th. And I'm not quite sure how his game is going to age. And as he gets older, if you remove him from an environment where he's surrounded by not just a ton of shooters, and I think the Warriors are often misidentified as this high-volume three-point shooting team, and they're not. They were 16th in three-point attempts per 100 possessions last year. But as you take them away from these floor spacers or these tough shot makers, I think the party changes there a little bit. And you just kind of look at uh, what Gobert has done defensively already. There have been, specifically last season, some injury concerns. He doesn't turn 27 until June and to have those two plus years on Draymond Green um, and to be more I would say of a universal fit at the offensive end again not more versatile not even better but Draymond Green has not been shooting the three ball well for most of his career unless it's the playoffs when he just decides to make shots for the most part which is which is just hysterical that that happens uh, he you can fit a screen and runner into an offense it's you can do that like it's just someone who doesn't want touches and I don't think Green would necessarily gripe about touches but if you're not going to have him kind of make plays with the ball in his hands and take advantage of the weapons around him there's only so much you can do he can be his own rim runner of course uh, but for someone who's shooting 32.7 percent from three for his career for someone who only shot 26.6 percent from three in the playoffs last year when he typically turns up I think I'd rather have him right now. If we're talking five years down the line, I'd probably take Gobert. I don't think there's anything uh, in that answer I can disagree with. When you first read the question, I was thinking, I think Gobert's a, (laughs) I think I had the exact same word in my mind, a more impactful defender than Draymond. Um, But yes, Draymond can guard more positions um, at a super high level. But I'm going to take Draymond just because he does so much more offensively. Um, He's essentially the point guard on so many possessions for the Warriors. And it unlocks things in in a similar way, you know, to what I was just saying with the Nuggets. Having a big man who can run the offense and allowing your guards to move around off the ball and just be catch and shoot guys. um, There are elements of that with the Warriors, for sure. When, When Draymond is bringing the ball up the floor on a fast break, Curry and Thompson know where to get to, uh, and they know that that Draymond will find them, and that's that's just not something that's ever going to be a part of Gobert's game. Um, I also think when I said it might not change my answer now or going forward, I think that's probably still true. But you made a, I think you made a pretty compelling argument that four or five years from now, you probably could take Gobert over Draymond. The thing about Gobert is. Um, 
like you said, a lot of what Draymond does, and there's no way for us to know this because we've never seen him outside this environment, but it could be largely dependent on the Warriors. I'm I'm fully convinced that you put Gobert on the floor with four other guys, four other NBA players, and it's going to be at least a competent defense. Um, I think it was Quinn Snyder who said at some point last year that Gobert is a defense unto himself. Somebody said that. Um, and I think that's that's totally true. As long as he's out there, uh, you're going to have a good defense. If he's out there with one or two good perimeter defenders, you're likely to have a great defense. Um, so maybe he is slightly more adaptable in that way. But Gobert or Draymond, um, at least right now i got to take Draymond. I'm sorry, Jazz fans. The, yeah, and I'm with you there. And the other thing to kind of consider, and this would be if you're looking down the road and want to consider taking Gobert, with Draymond Green, so – when he played without Stephen Curry last year, the Warriors were plus 0.3 points per 100 possessions. When he played with Stephen Curry, they were plus 13.8. That kind of drop-off, there's going to be, in Utah, there should be a smaller variance between when Gobert's playing with Donovan Mitchell and when he's not because of his defense. And that's going to translate mm-hmm. better to, to lineups that don't have the offensive lifelines out there. And even in the... like, So that would just be... I'm kind of like tripping over my own words here, but that would just be something to consider down the line as well is because he's, you know, yes, Draymond Green can do more on offense, but it's probably more likely that Gobert can anchor really good or above average units without any stars or more than replacement level players around him than Draymond Green at some point, maybe not now, but, but definitely some point. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I wanted to look at those Gobert Mitchell numbers just Well, I can tell you right now because I have them. Okay. So when Donovan Mitchell was off the court last year, uh, and the Jazz had Gobert, the Utah was minus 2.1 points, uh, per 100 possessions. When he played with Donovan Mitchell, um, the Jazz were a plus 12.2 points per 100 possessions. So the variance last year glass? was actually – what? Is that cleaning the glass? Yeah, that's all cleaning the glass. The variance yeah. that year was actually pretty similar. The difference between those two were about 15 points per 100 possessions, and then Draymond Green and Stephen Curry, uh, the difference was about 13.5 points per 100 I would not have guessed that it would be that big for Gobert and Mitchell. Here's my um, thing. Is that, I was going to say, in Gobert's defense, he was hurt for a lot of the year. And Raymond Green has Kevin Durant. So. Yeah. And I think if you looked at numbers like that in years past with Gobert, he was he was always the guy that was lifting everybody's net rating. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot going on with that. But that is interesting that, <laughs> that it was buoyed that much by having Donovan Mitchell on the floor with him. Well, I mean, more power to Donovan Mitchell, who yeah. is spectacular. I'm actually trying to see... Who would you rather see if we had to pick a second player for Gobert to have played without? Ingles, Rubio. What do you think is the more impactful player there? Uh, I think Ingles. The other thing that's interesting about these numbers with Gobert last season is, um, man, I'm not going to say those numbers. Those this are team, first half and second half. Uh, it's just it was just like a completely different team. Um, I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Thing, no. But it, it seems like that's probably skewing some numbers too. Right. Um, when Gobert played without Mitchell and Ingles, the Jazz were a minus 11.2 points per 100 possessions. And when Golden, when Draymond Green played without both Durant and Curry, uh, plus the Warriors were plus 0.1 point per 100 possessions. And again, I would take – it's not close for me at the moment. But fast forward five years, uh, maybe four, I don't know how far in the distance you want to go, there, there's a good chance that I would take Gobert. Yeah, I think I'm with you. So nothing I found changes my stance, but uh, Draymond Green is just wild. Um, all right, I got one. At uh, TJD Hoops, Thomas Duffy. Is it crazy to think the Celtics will flirt with 70 wins? Because if so, call me crazy. I'm going to call him crazy then, and I, I, <laughs> I like Tom. He's now a colleague back at Police Report with their social media team, so congrats yeah. to him. I... I don't really – what is the pathway to them winning 70? Is it you just think that the the Raptors are bad, the Sixers take a step back, the Bucks continue to underachieve, and that all these teams in the middle of the East between, let's say, 11 and the 4 seed just cannibalize wins? 
off of one another. I don't, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling. You're talking about, let's assume Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward are going to be healthy all year. There are just so many role questions that Boston has to answer. How does Gordon Hayward fit into what they did last year? Um, what does that mean for Kyrie Irving when he's playing alongside Gordon Hayward? How does this impact Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum, who showed out as quasi-focal points uh, toward the end of last year? I'm not concerned about Jason Tatum because more so than anyone else on the Celtics, at least from that group, his points just came within the flow of the offense. But I do think there are real questions to ask about Terry Rozier and, and Jalen Brown, and even a little bit of Kyrie Irving with how that offensive pecking order is going to work. I, I don't want it to sound like I'm just poo-pooing all over Boston's parade. I would pick them to finish first in the East, probably. Toronto's really the only threat I see to them. But I would be almost surprised if they got to 60 or 62 this year. Yeah, I was going to say their absolute ceiling is... is <clears throat> Sorry, again. <laughs> I think their absolute ceiling is probably low 60s. Last year, they won 55 um last year the raptors won 59 and i i think the raptors are the best team in the east um and i don't think that's that controversial uh the upgrade from DeRozan to leonard if leonard is healthy and um motivated is i I think that's a very very big one i mean you're essentially going from a top 25 to 30 player to a top five player and the jump um from that tier to the other one is, is just huge in the NBA. There are so, I mean, you have to have a top five player to be a title contender. It has seemed for most of uh, the NBA's history. So I think Toronto's better than Boston. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Boston had the best record in the East. Um, but they also still have, uh, Toronto has young guys too, but they're not thrust into quite as important a role as guys like Tatum and Brown. And obviously Tatum and Brown both show that they are uh, very able to rise to the challenge uh, throughout the playoffs last year in the last couple months of the regular season. But I just, I just think right now Toronto is still in a slightly better position than the Celtics. And I think Toronto probably tops out in like low 60s too. I, I think the way it'll shake out is Toronto will be – Low 60s, Boston will be high 50s, and, and the rest of the East will kind of fall in line accordingly. In support, though, of what the Celtics could do, and it's interesting that you're worried about the young guys and the roles that they will assume if maybe they're too I mean, that probably Boston. shouldn't be based on how the playoffs went. but Well, no, and I'm just saying I'm wondering if they're going to struggle to adapt to lesser roles because of how the, the food yeah. chain is going to change. Something I will say, though, is – when Horford, Brown, Tatum, and Irving were on the floor last year for cleaning the glass uh, for almost 1,600 possessions, the Celtics had a net rating of plus 7.3. They're, the fifth player in these lineups were was either Aaron Baines, Marcus Smart, Mark, Marcus Morris, Daniel Tice, or Terry Rozier. You're s- subbing out one of those guys for what, when healthy, is he was a top 25 player when he came to Boston, Gordon Hayward, I would say. And yeah, now if, I, you, if you look at it this way, and I would still say if Gordon Hayward is Gordon Hayward, and then you have Irving and Horford, you have three top 25 players. There's a chance that at least one of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum enters that territory next year. They're both probably top 40 right now. And if, Tatum does it, let's say. Maybe both of them do it. If you get to that point where you're like the Warriors and you have four or five top 25 guys, the Warriors don't even have five top 25 guys because DeMarcus Cousins um, isn't going to play for most of the year. And a lot of people think Klay Thompson isn't there, but that's, you know, I'm not with them there. Any Anyhow, if you get to that territory, I guess anything could technically happen. That's just so much talent at the top, and they are deep. But 70 wins is an awful lot. Yeah, it's a lot. And I think the difference between the Celtics and the Warriors is they could have four guys who are around top 25 when Golden State has two guys who are top five, one guy who's top 10, and one guy who's around top 25. Yeah. Um, And I I feel like the gap between a top 25 player and a top five player is pretty big in the NBA. I I totally do agree with you. And that's a really good point, actually. Um, And what is the incentive – for the Celtics to go, if they're, if they're going to win that many games, if they're on pace to win early 60s, mid 60s, 
they're going to be the top seed in the East. And so what is the incentive for them to continue just going forward and not maybe resting some guys or experimenting with some different things? Yeah. And maybe flirt with 70 means like 66, 67, which we've seen a few times. Like the Mavericks have done that. The Rockets, how many of the Rockets win last year? Did they win 67? 65. Um, 65. Um, yeah. So maybe the definition of flirt with 70, maybe if we look at that a little bit more loosely, it's, it's easier to see, but I don't, they're not, I don't, they're not getting to 70. They're not getting to like 69. So, yeah. Um, I have what I thought was a very interesting question here as we move on. And I'm hoping you don't have the same answer as me because I thought what I found was like the Trump card to the pick that I had before even looking at numbers. But anyway, this is from JB at JVZ, uh, JV Zenith at JV Zenith. Who leads the league in scoring this season? Oh, I tagged that one too. Look at us, um, just on the same page, just forever and always. Let me see. I want to look up. Uh, I should have done this earlier I'd since start, I tagged. Maybe the I should say it because I feel like we're going to be in lockstep again. Because I'm, I'm guessing you're going to have the same number I do. My pick would be Anthony Davis, and. He averaged 30.2 points per game after DeMarcus Cousins went down last year. And that, during said period, led the NBA. More than James Harden, more than Damian Lillard, more than LeBron, more than KD, so on and so forth. That's probably the right pick. Um, I just wanted to see. I'm going to look at the top, like, 10 or so and see if there's any sort of sleepers. Uh, um, Russell Westbrook's probably always in the conversation, although he finished eighth last year, maybe having no mellow there, his, his usage will tick up a little bit. I'm sure Paul George as well too, but, um, Harden's probably always in the conversation. I wonder yeah, if mellow on his team now. Good luck with that. Oh yeah. Maybe he'll <laughs> take the mellow hit now. Um, I wonder if LeBron will score a little bit more this year back with the Lakers. If he plays uh, off the ball. That could be interesting, right? Yeah, and there's, you know, there's not as many – I mean, there's nobody on the Lakers right now that's as proven a scorer as Kevin Love was. Um, Giannis, I think I think Anthony Davis is probably the right answer. Kevin Durant and Stephen Curry are going to be like neck and neck around 25-26 again. Um, nobody else really. Who would be – if we're both going to pick Anthony Davis, who is the sleeper pick for you? Can we call? Can we call Russell Westbrook a sleeper? I mean, he's won the scoring he, title before. He finished I, eighth last year. I think you can, especially because they have Schroeder now too. Oh, yeah, good point. I'm going to go with Westbrook then. My sleeper pick. Can I get a drum roll? <laughs> Damian Lillard. My reason. I, go ahead. I kind of scanned over his name a couple times and thought, do we want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, he came out, so I just wrapped a huge uh, NBA 100 project for Bleacher Report uh, teaser. Those will come out later this month. And he rated – I ended up putting him so much higher than I ever thought I would. And I think I even showed you what I put him at. Um, when This is looking at the same span as Anthony Davis. Damian Lillard was third in scoring behind only Harden and Davis after DeMarcus Cousins' injury. And my reasoning here would be the Blazers did not really improve over the offseason. We both love the Seth Curry edition as we talked about, but he's not going to monopolize any real part of the offense. And there is no upside on this roster to the degree that you look at them and say, oh, they're going to assume bigger offensive roles. Nurkic might be uh, someone who gets de-emphasized offensively, or they're going to try and get rid of some of his post-ups. Uh, Mo Harkless, should. and yeah, <laughs> they should, and Al Farouk Aminu, those are guys that are going to hit a modest number of threes and take a modest number of shots. They're not going to go up. Uh, how much more can CJ McCollum shoot Evan Turner? It's, I mean, he's kind of a second unit ball handler and he doesn't shoot too much to begin with. Anyway, Zach Collins, a pick and pop specialist. And so when you look at this roster, it's limited in the potential unplumbed potential that it has. And then two, even when you factor that in, and even when you just look at guys who might be ready for, slightly larger workloads none of it is going to eat is going to be large enough to eat into Damian Lillard's own workload and if the Blazers want to stay in the playoff hunt out west 
or even in the mid-tier like they were last year, they're going to need Damian Lillard to play out of his mind. And I could see a scenario in which he leads the league in scoring because of that. You know about my little, uh, I averaged the ranks of all the players in seven different catch-alls. And then I sort them by that average. Last year, James Harden was first uh, by that. LeBron James was second. Damian Lillard was third. I did not realize he was that high. I wanted and to be- Davis four, Nikola Jokic five. I'm so tempted to just drop where I put Damian Lillard, but I'm not going to uh, carefully <laughs> spoil anything. If you really need to know, feel free to add me on Twitter, and I'll just tell you. Save that little nugget. Um, or uh, or leave a uh, review on, on the podcast, right? Yeah, if you tell me that you just rated, reviewed, so I want to see a written comment. And you better screenshot that thing too. And Yeah, screenshot it. And subscribe to Hardwood Knox. Damp Valley will <laughs> give you five inside picks of his top 100 players that will not be live for at least another couple weeks. I like it. It's hot stuff uh, right here. <laughs> at LucasRod30. I flagged, Biggest... I flagged this one too. I don't know why we say flagged. <laughs> I hit it. like I, 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 I highlighted it as well. Biggest surprise team this year. Um, These questions are hard. They're super tough, and I did you interpret it as um, team that's like most likely to surprise in a good way or a bad way? Oh, I was thinking good way, but you, I think you could go either way. Yeah, uh, my surprise team is the Denver Nuggets, and I, I think what people kind of fail to realize about them, there's a fairly good chance they're not going to be a crap show on the defensive end. They were 26th um, in defensive rating last year. They were a lot better with Paul Millsap on the floor for the most part of the season. Uh, the chemistry, the and it was raw chemistry because Millsap and Jokic didn't have a chance to really work through the motions early in the season before Millsap suffered his wrist injury. They were dominant lineups with Millsap in there. When you look at their projected starting five, Jamal Murray, Gary Harris, Will Barton, Paul Millsap, and Nikola Jokic. You definitely have five top 50 players there. And then when you look at Millsap, Jokic, and Gary Harris, and Murray, there's a chance that by the end of the season you have four top 40, top 35 guys. And that might be ambitious on Jamal Murray, but he's part of the reason why I think they're going to surprise. If he makes another offensive leap, he's going to be a candidate for the Most Improved Player Award. You throw that into having Nikola Jokic, um, a fully healthy Millsap. Gary Harris is still Gary Harris. I know depth can be an issue with this team, but as we're talking about that tier just below the Warriors, it would not shock me if they're fighting for the two and the three spots. I don't think they're going to be the team that wins that second seed, but with the moves that Houston has made or not made or the, with the losses they've suffered, incurred, this offseason, I don't think they're guaranteed to be there. And that's going to open the door for teams like OKC and Utah and Denver. And it might even open the door now a little bit larger for the Nuggets, or a little bit more for the Nuggets, excuse me, because this Russell Westbrook injury, it doesn't sound like he's going to miss a ton of time looking at the regular season schedule, but he is losing valuable reps with Dennis Schroeder and Paul George during training camp because that three-man blend, which we have to assume is going to spend a good amount of time together on the floor. It's not this seamless, natural fit. Schroeder's a ball dominator. Neither him nor Westbrook are, are great shooters off the ball. And it, it, that might cost the Thunder some ground early on. And so now you're looking at Denver, maybe New Orleans, and, and, all, and also Utah. That's going to make it a little bit easier for them if they can make up the ground early in the season to be in that conversation. And it would not surprise me if we're sitting here at the end of the year, Denver is third or fourth in the West with between 52, 54, 55 wins. I like that pick a lot. Um, they're, they're one of many teams I could see rising up to like third in the West. Um, like I said, this is a hard question for me. I don't I thought it was just going to be Dallas from you and we'd move on. Well, yeah, I could say Dallas. We have talked about them, uh, for me, a bunch of times. And I think that probably would surprise a lot of people if they were around 500. Um, Detroit? Not that they'll be be great, um, but they were 
plus three points per hundred possessions last season when Drummond and Griffin shared the floor. And that was for almost 600 minutes. I, I felt like that combo was working fairly well and it was put together on the fly. So maybe now they have a full off season in training camp together. They'll be even better. And they've, they just added, um, I just, I'm totally blanking Dwayne Casey, um, as their coach. And he's coming off a great run with the Raptors. And I think he finally embraced sort of modern offense last season. Maybe he brings that to Detroit with him. And we see lineups with, uh, Griffin and Drummond in the front court. And then basically they're only three shooters, <laughs> um, filling the other spots with Luke Kennard, Reggie Bullock, um, maybe Glenn Robinson. I, I think they have a chance to be interesting. And I, I don't know if mid to high forties would make them a surprise. I think that would, um, the other one I was thinking about, would it be surprising if Cleveland wound up like 500 and pushing for a playoff spot? For me, it would be, yeah. I feel like if they sort of stay in, um, if they don't blow it up, the East is still fairly weak, especially like after the top four or five teams. They still have Kevin Love. I think George Hill is good. Um I, I'm high on Jetty Osman. I think Larry Nance is really good. I think he's one of the most underrated players in the league. I think in that conference, if they keep everybody together and they stay healthy, which is that's actually a big question mark with George Hill. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that team pushed up to like high thirties, low forties. Those are those are both kind of lukewarm takes for surprise teams, but that's all I got. The Jazz should probably be thrown in there just because I'm not sure. Uh, we're so immersed in, uh, or for me anyway, just as like kind of this outsider, because I do this podcast with you and because I have followers who are jazz fans, I, I feel like I'm more hip to how good the jazz are going to be. And I feel like NBA Twitter in general is as well. And I don't know if a casual fan is expecting Utah to go out and make a run at that two, three seed in the West, which they will. But uh, in NBA Twitter terms, they're probably not going to be a surprise. My, uh- the hype for the Jazz is almost scaring me at this point. But it's like, I don't think that the casual fan looks at Maybe I'm wrong at this point. I don't think they look at them. When my friends talk to me about basketball, no, they never I bring up the Jazz. Another team to consider here, I, I, just the Spurs. People, a lot. you don't think they're going to make the playoffs? I've written them off, yeah. Yeah, I, I think they're going to make the playoffs. And it wouldn't surprise me if they turn out another 50-win season, despite losing a top-five player in the league. Um, who they didn't have last year, but now they've kind of crimped their space in even more by losing Danny Green. So uh, it, it wouldn't shock me if they turned out another 50-win season in spite of the projections. Um, I've got one more. You want to do it? Let's do it. A few players you expect may become available around the trade deadline, at Richard Allen 22 I had this uh, marked as well. Um, Perfect. I, on sort of like the less riskier front, I would put Kemba Walker with Charlotte, um, Jimmy Butler in Minnesota would be two names to watch. Um, I could see a scenario in which the Blazers flop and Damian Lillard gets restless and they just, they, maybe they don't, they're not totally sold on moving him, but they'll gauge the market. CJ McCollum would also be a pick. Uh, it seems like people have been waiting for that backcourt to just break up forever. And I don't think if it happens, I don't think it'll happen this season, but it could. My bold pick would be Kawhi Leonard. And mm-hmm. just if he doesn't want to commit to Toronto and the Raptors aren't first or second in the East, um, if, if you're if you're if you're the Raptors, yes, you made this trade knowing he could leave. It seemed like you were content just to get Demar Derozan's money off the books. You look at the Lakers or the Clippers or the the Sixers or the the Celtics. If they're willing to give you anything that doesn't tack on money beyond 2019 2020, which is when Kyle Lowry comes off the books, Jonas Valanciunas comes off the books, then why wouldn't you throw try and dangle him? Uh, as a as a rental and see if you can get a first round pick or a nice prospect out of the equation. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's definitely in play, and I think Masai is the kind of shrewd uh, executive who would sort of leave all options on the table. The name I'm going to throw out needs a 
a lot of qualifying. Um, I think the Pelicans will be good this season, but if they are, if they're really struggling around the deadline, I don't think Davis will necessarily be available, but you will hear his name, um, from lots of media people and who knows what, you know, sources will be motivated to say what, but if they are underperforming, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear about him. And the only other thing I was thinking about, in addition to all the names that you brought up, I think those all make sense. Um, I would just say keep an eye on the Clippers. That's a yeah. team that needs to blow it up, in my opinion. And they have a lot of – they don't have, like, really any stars, but they have a lot of solid players that could help a bunch of different teams in the league. And if they at some point decide, let's let's break this thing up, let's start over um, – that could be a little trade deadline <laughs> goldmine, well, the Los Angeles Clippers. Well, they also – they have the ability to make the star trade more so than a lot yeah, of other teams. Yeah, if they want to bring somebody back. And yeah, that's true. I mean, just even look at it. So you, some of the teams that might get rid of stars, uh, Minnesota, maybe even Portland, if they're looking to move Damian Lillard. Doing, Minnesota definitely isn't going to be looking to rebuild. And so if you're going to dangle Avery Bradley as your primary salary filler, uh, a pick – um, you have some young guys, maybe Jerome Robinson. I wouldn't give up Gilgis Alexander in that trade. I, I think he's going to be insanely good. I talk about that more in the Pacific Division preview. Uh, and you have Tyrone Wallace now. The, you just have a lot of – and you have just great salary matching pieces when you look at the inspiring, expiring contracts. Patrick, Patrick Beverly can still help a team and is on an expiring contract. Um, Lou, Lou Williams is on a great deal. It's not guaranteed um, for 2020-2021. So – there's just a lot of things they could do. Wes Johnson deals expiring. You could move Tobias Harris if you want to. Another name that I would keep an eye on, and I'm interested to see what your thoughts would be, um, Kyrie Irving. I just feel like yeah. if if the Celtics aren't sure that he's coming back, if he wants his own team still, if he's interested in teaming up with Jimmy Butler, Boston has Tatum, has Brown, has Hayward, has Horford. They could parlay Irving you're not going to get another star for him, but you could flip him somewhere. Maybe the Clippers would be that team where you're getting a, you know, two to four, like above replacement level players or something, uh, and, or a pick and like two players and a pick, just something to get. And then now you don't have to pay Irving and money is something that they have to concern themselves with just because, uh, Horford could enter free agency this summer. I don't think he will. Um, I, I don't know that he would get a max deal on the open market. Maybe he would, but $30.1 million is a lot. But he's going to need a new contract soon. Gordon Hayward has the option of exploring free agency in the summer of 2020. If he returns to form, there's a chance that he'll do that. You also have in, in the next couple of years, Jalen Brown is extension eligible the next summer and then will be a restricted free agent. And then in 2019, Jason Tatum is extension eligible and will be a restricted free agent in 2020. And that those are just some things that you have to look at. And I could see maybe the Celtics could still be great. And I could see Kyrie Irving landing on the trade block. I would say he's, to me, at least infinitely more likely than Anthony Davis to end up on the chopping block. Yeah, that's interesting. They, they certainly have a general manager in Danny Ainge who's uh, shown that he's not high on sentimentality. <laughs> and <laughs> um, yeah, if, if there's some indication that Kyrie Irving is going to leave anyway, then that's a team that almost always you know, tries to see what they can get instead of just losing somebody for nothing. Uh, you know that I'm all in on New York Knicks being led back to glory by Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, whether or not that'll happen. The Knicks need to trade Tim <laughs> um, Hardaway Jr. for that to happen, so he will be available. Any GMs <laughs> are listening to this or assistant that's GMs. That's a great trade, Kyrie, for Tim Hardaway straight up, right? I'm sure some Knicks fans will propose it and then try and justify it. <laughs> what do you think? I'm inclined to say no. I think they'll give it a year. What about Kevin Love? Once, of course, you know, his trade restriction lifts. I Yeah, I thought they should have traded him. Well, yes, right away. The Cavs, but, and the 11 seed is appealing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he could be on the market. I think he could be on the market this year if they're really bad. I mean, what's what's the point of keeping him if you, you're trending towards like a 25 to 30 win season? Do you think that you can reach within the next couple of years? Um during the course of his extension, I guess, but um, I just don't know yeah. if it's a move you make mid-season because 
I, I don't know which teams have need for him right now. We've talked about the well, Utah Utah's scenario. Obvious yeah. Obvious one. But when you're talking about a market, I think of- there's still trades that make sense on that front that could save Cleveland money because now Utah has a very, um, very interesting contract with Derek Favors that's essentially expiring. If you want to, if you want to save some money, and that's that's what it would have to be for Cleveland as a money saving type of thing. I don't, I don't know what else they would be hoping to get out of a, of a Kevin Love trade. Well, the only thing is if he just returns to. Uh, 2013, 2014, Kevin Love, which not only was that so long ago, but we're now in this different era in the NBA. And the other thing I don't think we're pointing out enough, Love is still going to get his post touches now, and he should be great, but he wasn't spraying pull-up threes with Minnesota. He was getting fed looks, and he had Ricky Rubio, and now he has Colin Sexton. Like, that's the difference there is going to be demonstrative. So yeah, he, that's true. Unless he rec- like rebuilds that value to where it was four years ago, a half decade ago, I, I think you're right that it would have to be a money-saving trade. I would think, I know I said Kemba Walker, but the Hornets in general, they kind of fall, they're not as talented and their contracts aren't as uh, enticing, but they kind of fall into that Clippers category where there are a lot of players you could see them trying to move. Batum is an albatross. But um, if he's if he shows out, maybe there's a team willing to take a chance on on the on what he can do defensively. And as a he should probably be your third ball handler rather than your second. But Marvin Williams, Cody Zeller, uh, Michael Kick Gilchrist, those are all names that could kind of crop up. One I wanted to propose to you because it came up in the Pacific Division preview, and I don't want to steal our guest reasoning, uh, but I found it very interesting. Trevor Ariza. Let's say the Suns fall out of the playoff picture. They know that Trevor Reese isn't part of their long-term plan anyway. And you're talking about teams that uh, are going to want a wing to help them for the playoffs. And what they've done by overpaying him is now they have the ability. They're, you know, they signed Trevor Reese. They poached Tyson Chandler for years ago. But Phoenix isn't this free agent hotspot. And if they're almost committed to paying Ryan Anderson beyond this season. I know they have the chance to pay him to go away for what they were just going to give Brandon Knight uh, and his 2019-2020 salary. But if you're going to keep him, you've now tacked on. He made more than Chris's player option and Brandon Knight combined. So you've tacked on money there. You've already re-signed Devin Booker. You'll have cap space, but it'll be a little bit harder to get to max room. And perhaps you're willing to trade Ariza for someone who has an extra year on his deal in exchange for having um, another pick and prospect and, and catering to the longer game a bit more. And that to me would really just appeal to certain playoff teams would be my guess. Yeah, that all uh, makes sense to me. Um, did you have anything else you were dying to answer in the next couple minutes? Yes. Um, I want to ask you this from Phil Jaff. Uh, that's at Phil J A. FFE. And it's not really an NBA related question, but Andy, do you like basketball more or less now that it's essentially the focal point of your career? Um I saw that one too. I I think I'm gonna be every bit as into it once the season starts as I've as I've always been. Um my uh some friends from I have like a group text with a bunch of close friends from high school that has gone on for like fifteen years now. Um and they were all talking last night about how they're less into sports than they were as kids. And that's just not even close to the case for me. I can't wait for the season to start. <laughs> um, hopefully, uh, hopefully all my clients and my uh, coworkers with that. As you're tweeting through while you're going over their, their conference <laughs> or you're in a meeting. There will be no, uh, I hate to inform you guys, but as much as I tweeted through class, I will not be able to tweet through court. That's that's really unfortunate, but I wouldn't put it past him, guys. Like, <laughs> you never know. Maybe yeah. they're just coming back from a recess and things have started, but Andy's not done getting his stats threads <laughs> off. I'm in the hall, like getting a fire tweet off, and then I come storming in. <laughs> <laughs> With the, like phone drop. You're like, man, yeah. that, thing, that thing is going to get at least a hundred retweets. Oh um, yeah. I would say, for me personally, um, I know I'm very fortunate to make my full-time living off of uh, basketball, NBA writing predominantly. And I do love what I do for the most part. I do, And I hate saying this because it's going to sound like complaining. I'm not sure that people, and you can attest to this as someone who juggles a different career, I don't think they understand the work 
sometimes, some people, that goes into what we do. And the podcast is actually probably the easiest part of anything we do because we get to sit here and riff with, I actually like you, so you're not dealing with, and we get to choose (laughs) our topics um, and really focus them. It's just the the schedules during the season uh they can they can be really taxing it's tough for me at least i've always struggled with work life balance and the amount of hours i put in and that just might be a me problem but i think across the industry there are a lot of people that work really hard and we all are fortunate um particularly the ones that are making their full time living off of mba writing and coverage but it's not it's it's just not easy and effortless. And I still look forward to each and every season, but there's a part of me, this downtime in the off season where we get this like four, this summer feels a little longer, maybe like five week window because Kyrie Irving didn't request another trade. <laughs> it's it's not only appreciated, it's almost kind of much needed, but again, I that comes off as complaining. I don't hate basketball now that I've covered it for closer to a decade and it's such a huge part of my life, but there's definitely a struggle with the way the NBA operates there. 24 7 365 news cycle is is awesome for the most part but it, it also can be a burden at times yeah i agree with that and there there are elements of the journalism industry that are um it's like a battlefield <laughs> in a lot of ways and that can be uh draining as well so young yeah, writers know your worth just because the industry is tough and cutthroat doesn't mean that you need to be just happy to be here that's true. That's a, that's great advice. Um, I'm old. I, right. I'm washed. I'm almost 30. That's, I just gave advice. <laughs> well, here's uh, another advice. Don't take advice. Here's more advice. Don't take advice from me. Um, my advice is that you ignore that last bit of advice from Dan and take the earlier advice. Um, if you want more advice from Dan, I encourage you to follow him on Twitter and to ask him for life advice <laughs> at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. The show is at Hardwood Knox. The sponsor is at NBA underscore math. As always, uh, we sincerely, sincerely appreciate uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show on. Um, I still get a kick out of <laughs> every review that that I read on there. It's, it's really cool that you guys listen and um, put any stock in our basketball opinions and now our life advice. Um, so until next time, we leave you with the shout out to Benno Udry. And Kyle Anderson. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.